It's good to be back at church on Wednesday evening. Um, we're going to continue our study through the book of Acts. Tonight we'll be in chapter 2, and we'll be covering verses 25 through the end of the chapter, hopefully. Um, a lot to cover here. So I made a, a decision that the past teachings that I have done, I have spent time going all the way back to chapter 1 and then working my way back to where we currently are in just a review so that everybody's up to speed. Well, I'm not going to do that tonight, and I'm going to try and not go back that far every night. We ought to be on that page now. But we will start in, in verse 25. Um, this continues the sermon of Peter to the listeners in the streets of Jerusalem. And... Uh, Verse 25 starts with the second of three Old Testament passages that Peter is going to use. And Peter continues to, to um, recognize common ground of believing that the Old Testament scriptures are true and the people in the streets believe the same thing as well. They all believe them to be true. So Peter quotes Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11, here in the book of Acts, which is chapter 2, verses 25 to 28. If you go to Psalm 16, you find the same words there as you do here. And it can be a bit confusing. Because Peter said that David said that the Lord said. I mean, it can be a bit cumbersome when you really get to thinking about it. So, so Peter's message here is that the apostles' teachings are within the keeping of the scriptures that the listeners in the street also believe. This is where he's starting. It's common ground again. So for clarity, I'm going to back up for just a minute. Before we started this journey through the book of Acts, I taught all the way through Psalm 16. And I taught that whole chapter from the point of view of David speaking about himself. And here we have Peter using these verses as though Christ is speaking about himself. And um, I'm thinking to myself, well, did I miss something? Did I present something wrong that night? And it's a burden to stand here. I mean, to try and teach, you want to make sure that you're teaching accurately. To mislead any of you is the last thing I would ever want to do. So it was kind of a burden when I'd done that. So I thought, well, I'll just dig through my commentaries. I'll look at Psalm 16. I'll look at Acts chapter 2. I'll look at the applications. And what I found is, is about half of the commentators that I've used, and all of them are reputable, about half of them, when you look through their commentary, they did it as though David's speaking about himself. And then the other half of them, when you look through their commentaries, they transcribe this as though Peter is speaking what David spoke as though David was speaking in the first person for Jesus Christ. And I thought, I know what this is. It's been a long time, but I know what this is. 
So when you run into these scenarios where that you have two applications, you, you have what is referred to as, some call it a dual application, some will call it a dual prophecy. And, and in saying that, and in saying that, neither interpretation is wrong. It's a matter of context. It's a matter of application. It's a matter of who said what when and who were they talking to. But in a dual application or a dual prophecy, you have to realize that there is a near application. There's hey, something Sam, that it applies to. I hope to. you're not upstairs sleeping. Excuse me. It applies to something that is near and something that is happening now or very soon. And then there's a far application that somewhere down the road, this scripture is going to come up again and it's going to apply. Peter is using these verses from the Psalms and applying them to Christ and they fit so well. And when I did the study for Psalm 16, it fits so well for David. So bear that in mind. J. Edwin Harrell defined a dual application as, and this is an interesting definition, the peculiarity of the writings of the Holy Spirit by which a passage is applied primarily to a person or an event near at hand and it's used by him, the Holy Spirit, at a later time as applying to the person of Jesus Christ or the affairs of his kingdom. And another writer that I ran across said that prophecy no sooner becomes history and then history in turn becomes prophecy in this application. So as we go through these verses we will see much reference to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's a lot of time spent here by Peter preaching the resurrection of Christ. And as we go through that, you're going to notice, you could count the words and you'd just be like, wow, he's resurrection, resurrection. But that's not the message that he is conveying here. Yes, he's teaching the resurrection, but he's teaching the resurrection as a sign, as a miracle, as a wonder of Jesus' Messiahship. He wants the people to understand that Jesus Christ was the promised Messiah of old and that he has come. And you're going to hear him say over a time or two, and you killed him. You murdered him. Thousands of years we waited for him to show up, and you hung him on a cross. So as we move forward, the confirmation of the Messiah is the real storyline, but he's going to use the resurrection over and over again getting there. So it's at this point, we'll start with uh, verse 25, and I'm going to try and cover through the end of the chapter. As I decided not to do a whole lot of review and give myself some extra time, and then I realized the rest of the chapter kind of is a review. So just bear with me. So if you would, please stand, and we'll turn to Acts 2. 25, this is God's revelation, his inerrant word. In verse 25, chapter 2. 
For David says of him, I saw the Lord continually before me, because he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad, and my tongue exulted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope, because you will not forsake my soul to Hades, nor give your Holy One over to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. And then Peter says, Men, brothers, I may confidently say to you, regarding the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and in his tomb is with us to this day. And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to set one of the fruit of his own body on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither forsaken to Hades nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this which you have both seen and what you hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies as a footstool for your feet. And therefore, let all of the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And I'm stopping there. I said the end of the chapter. This is the end of his sermon. It's not the end of the chapter. I said that wrong. But I'm going to start, stop right there. Let's have just a word of prayer. This is your word, Father. I pray that it will go forth and accomplish all that you've set it forth to do. I pray that we will all be further sanctified as we apply your truths more and more fully to our lives. Give us the words that you would have spoken in the ears to hear them, Lord, and to understand them. As we know that your word will not return void. We love you and pray this in Jesus' name and all God's children said, Amen. So you can be seated. So, so last week I talked about attention. And you probably remember talking about God's sovereignty and the responsibility of man. Tonight there's a tension here that I'm going to point out to you. And that's one thing about doing the expository teaching thing and going through this a verse at a time. You don't get to skip over the hard stuff. You've got to face up. And you've got to study. And sometimes you have to dig. And sometimes you have to decide between this option and that option. And it helps my prayer life. Because I don't want to be wrong. And... Uh, and, and it's, it's, it's tough sometimes. But I do like to point out these ten- tensions because there's a level. It's interesting, right? It's something that grabs our attention and says, how does God do this? And it should make us hunger more and make us, make us study more earnestly. So I'm, I'm going to start out with saying that, okay, I told you part of the, part of the commentaries that I use sided with the way I taught Psalms, and that's uh, Poe Hill and Kistemacher and others. And then there was another group that focused on the message in Acts and how it applied to Christ, and that was like MacArthur and Spurgeon and Lloyd Martin Jones and others. And I'm going to focus on the commentaries 
that I used are primarily going to be those of Spurgeon, MacArthur, and Martin Lloyd-Jones because they were holding to the view of which Peter is applying these verses. So, so in doing that, they interpreted these verses and they teach these verses as coming from the first person view of Jesus Christ. If I stand here and I say, I am going to do this, I'm speaking in the first person, I. So they're taking these words as being spoken as though Christ was saying them. And since they've made a strong teaching on, these applica- on this application, that's the ones I'm going to focus with. When I make references, those will be the ones that I use. And it may be just a little heavier than I've done in the past, so I will apologize for that right now, but I think it's necessary for some of the description here. And since I have taught this from the first-person perspective of David already, it just makes sense to do it from this other perspective now because this is the way Peter teaches it. But first, I want to deal with this tension. I want us to gain some clarity on Jesus and his state of being as he faced the crucifixion. Because there are verses coming up that are going to contradict what you might remember the Bible saying. At least it's going to feel that way a little bit. And I want to talk through that some. So so when when we think about the crucifixion and Christ facing that, In Luke chapter 22, and you can turn there if you want, I'm going to read it. We see that Christ was under much anguish concerning his coming sacrifice on the cross. And in the garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane, verses 39 to 41 tells this story of his prayer in that garden. And I'm going to jump in here at verse 41 and I'm going to read through 44. It says, and he withheld from them, and when it says him, we're talking about Christ. And when it says them, we're talking about the apostles that were there. And when he, Christ, withdrew from them, the apostles that were with him, it was about a stone's throw distance. And he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove, remove this cup from me. Yet, not my will, but yours be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. I would say he was stressed a little, wouldn't you? I would say there was a level of despair that he was experiencing. Dread is here without saying the word. It's here. And make no mistake, the human nature of Christ had severe dread. He had severe stress here for what was about to take place in his sacrifice. Christ, he clearly knows what he's about to endure. He knows the name of the people that hold the cat and nine tails waiting on him. He knows the name of the people that wove his crown of thorns. He knows the people that spit in his face. He knows what's coming. And while I feel certain that some of this dread did stem from this abuse or even torture that he's getting ready to face, I really don't think 
that this is what he dreaded most. I don't think that this is what he dreaded most of all. The thing that he dreaded most was being separated from the Father, even if it was just for a few minutes. Even if it was just a brief period of time. Matthew 27, 46 states, and, about, and you can correct me on my Greek here in a little while. Uh, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama, sabachthani, A, B, C. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I found it very interesting. We've got four Gospels covering the crucifixion of Christ in detail. And this is the only time that he cries out in agony. This is the only time that the Bible records his pain. Is when he says these words. Now I'm not standing here telling you that he didn't cry out. When the beatings took place. I'm not sitting, standing here telling you that he didn't cry out with the suffering that he went through. But what I am telling you is it was important when the words were penned. It was important that this was the agony you remembered. It was important that this is where the suffering was from. Spurgeon explained this very well. And sometimes I find him a little hard to read, to be honest. But man, sometimes it is really full writing. Sometimes it just really clicks. And he stated, in order that the sacrifice of Christ, in order that the sacrifice of Christ be complete, it pleased the Father to forsake his well-beloved Son. Sin was laid on Christ, so God must turn away his face from the sin bearer. And to be desert, deserted of his God was the climax of Christ's grief, the quintessence of his sorrow, is what Spurgeon says. These teachings would lead me to believe that Christ was shaken. So why have I spent this time reminding you of the sorrow of Christ, the pain of Christ? Because Peter is quoting David here and explaining that Christ would not be shaken in verse 25. And I think we have plenty of evidence that says he was, right? For David says of him, and this is verse 25, <clears throat> and remember, this is supposedly the teaching of Christ about himself. It's the way that the wording is. I saw the Lord continually before me because he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. So here's your tension. How in the world do we explain this away, right? Peter quotes on that Jesus' heart was glad, his tongue was exalted, and I think that means rejoiced, that he, he rejoiced in, in an exaltation. And that's in verse 26. In verse 27, David goes on to explain why he can rejoice. He knows that his soul will not be forsaken to Hades or the grave. And that his physical being will not see corruption or decay. So come back to Matthew with me for a minute. In the garden. And let's ask ourselves some questions. One of those verses talked about an angel coming. Appeared to him. And strengthening him. It didn't say tried to strengthen him. 
It didn't say he put his arm around him and tried to comfort him. It says that the angel was strengthening him. Ask yourself a question. What could the angel have done to strengthen the Savior of the world? What did the angel have to offer him? Because he certainly did something, or elsewise he couldn't have been strengthening him. What could he have done to bring Christ to the point of gladness and rejoicing from his pit of despair he's in? We are not told clearly what happened there. I don't have any special insight to understand what the angel may have said or done. I can imagine, though, I can imagine the angel comforted him with words concerning of how he was about to provide a way of salvation to those whom the Father has given him. I can imagine that the angel may have well reminded him that after this suffering is over, you're going to be reunited with the Father for all eternity the way you were for all eternity past. And that may have resonated to Christ's human nature. And he may have even talked to him about, you're not going to have to endure this for very long. Just a few minutes after this, just a second after this, you're going to be back in the Father's presence. But one must believe at the same time that Christ's divine nature overrode any human feelings of dread that he may have experienced in the beginning of this time of distress. They call him the God-man, right? Because he's 100% God, not 50%, 100% God. And he's 100% man, not 50% man, 100% man. He's full, fully God and fully human. <clears throat> In the book of Hebrews, chapter 5, verse 7, we are informed of his anguish. But that his prayer was heard because of his reverence. That's the wording in the, the legacy standard. And if you, you read that verse, it says, He in the days of his flesh offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. <clears throat> That's Christ in the garden, as best as I can tell. Tears. The one able to save him from his death. And his prayer was heard because of his reverence. So one can only believe that between the angel's intervention, the strengthening of him by the angel, and his prayer being answered, Jesus found comfort, the amount of comfort needed to be glad to be the sacrifice for his people. I don't know how the angel strengthened him, but it happened. His prayer was heard. Have you ever prayed and, and not got exactly what you asked for? One of my children is sick. My wife is ill. My parents are not healthy. Someone at the church, my next door neighbor. And you pray, God, I know they're seriously ill, but if you would, please lay your healing hand upon them. 
And the answer you get isn't the one that you had hoped for. But that doesn't mean he didn't answer your prayer. Because the answer you may have gotten would have been a bucket full of strength and ability to deal with that scenario and going through the loss of that person. And, and I can think about my own dad, my grandparents, people that I truly and sincerely cared about. The answer to the prayer wasn't what I'd hoped for, but it was probably even better. I got to see God with me. I'm going to move on here. So as we proceed forward, there's no doubt that what Jesus endured was no pleasant task. It was a terrible, difficult task. But Christ was glad to do it, not only for the love of his people, but also for the love of the Father. Remember, we talked about it being God's predetermined plan. Hebrews 12.2 reads, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The joy before him endured the cross. So Peter, quoting David, tells us of the joy that Christ had in being the sacrifice for the people the Father had given him. The level of faith that Jesus had in the Father would allow him no other pathway than to accomplish the redemption for his people. He had no choice. And he was glad to do it. And this is covered in verse 26 if we move on. My heart was glad and my tongue exulted. And, and when, when one has joy in their soul and gladness in their heart, your tongue is going to speak it. When you truly have joy in Christ, others are going to hear about it. When you truly have that gladness in your heart, others are going to hear. Sure hope and confidence can only exist in the climate such as this. Josh has been speaking about assurance. You want to have assurance, you've got to believe. You want to believe, you've got to have faith. You're going to have faith, you're going to have joy in your soul. These are all connected. To be the opposite is to be destitute from God. That's when doubt starts creeping in. You open that door just a little bit and doubt will come seeping through that crack so fast you can't get it shut fast enough. Christ states in John 16, 22, Therefore, you too have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. What did that just say? When we see Christ, we're going to have joy that we've never experienced, and no one will ever take that away from you. Ever. And when I think about that, I think about the things that they're saying here. I can't help but think about the martyrs that have died before us. 
What is it within them that drove them to march down that street and climb on that pyre and be burned alive? What is it that took them to that block where they were beheaded, drawn and quartered, crucified, multiple, multiple ways stoned that they were martyred and killed? And the amazing thing is they got to see more by sight than we do. Many of, many of these apostles, all the apostles, got to see Christ in his resurrected body, right? And to see one of them go to their execution and never utter a word against Christ is one thing. When they killed John Owen and some of the Puritans, and they had to march down that street... None of them turned their back on Christ. They had this joy to be able to do that. They had this devotion to be able to do that. There's no doubt. They had clarity because they knew what was on the other side of that fire. And they knew that they were going to stand. They were going to stand firm. Philippians 4, 7 explains this even further or clearer. It reads, And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's what we're talking about, right? The peace of God. It surpasses all understanding, all comprehension. And that peace will guard you. Christ prays on in John 17, 13, and even goes to the point of saying this, but now I come to you and these things I speak in the world so that they, his, his, his apostles, his believers, the ones the Father has given him, may have my joy made full in them. All of the joy that Christ had, he's praying to the Father and we know that his prayers have been heard because of his reverence and he wants Wayne to have every bit of that joy. And he wants it given to Richard and to Jerry and to Jason. Every one of us to have that same level of peace beyond comprehension. That same level of joy and gladness in their heart that he had. And how many times do we try to get in the way of that? This is a prayer of the Messiah that the believers will have Christ's joy fully. So when we read of Christ's suffering, and yes, he did have suffering, yet he was glad to do this as a form of rejoicing before the Father and for his people's redemption. Spurgeon here again stated, His devout reliance on God caused him to sing over the tomb his tongue exulted, and rejoice in a vision of the grave. His heart was glad. Verse 27. Because you will not forsake my soul to Hades, nor give your Holy One over to see corruption. We've talked about this word Hades before, and it is properly interpreted in some text as the word hell. 
and it's properly interpreted in others as to be the grave or a pit. And here we see the, the terminology of Hades used as the grave. And the second part of this verse contains the title Holy One. And Holy One references the Messiah in multiple places. It's a messianic title that we find in Mark chapter 1, Luke chapter 4, John chapter 6. And I stop there. Verse 27 focuses on the fact that Jesus would not be held by the grave, the song that Josh and Sean sung just a minute ago. That's what it was about. His physical body would not experience decay or corruption is the word that is used. His physical body will remain the same through the event of the resurrection. The apostles experiencing Christ for the first time in the upper room and Thomas isn't with them. And Thomas comes back in. John 20 verses 19 to 29. Now, I may go out on a limb here a little bit, Josh. You pull me back in if you need to. So while it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and while the doors were shut where the disciples were, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. Didn't say he opened the door. Didn't say knock. Said, let me come in. The doors were shut. And he just came and stood in their midst. And when he said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any... Their sins have been forgiven them. And if you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Sorry, it's a new Bible and the pages are stuck together. But Thomas, one of the twelve codidimus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, the imprint of his nails, and put my finger into the place of those nails... And put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas was with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Come here. Put your finger in my side. How many times have I done that? I'm not going to believe. I'm going to run. I'm going to deny it. It's no different than Thomas. And Jesus says, bring your finger here and see my hands and bring your hand here and put it in my side. And do not be unbelieving, but be believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are those who did not see and yet believed. Isn't that us? We believe and we have not seen. We see by faith and not by sight. 
Being stated in this manner, we have every reason to believe that when on our day of redemption comes to full fruition, if we're, when we're able to see by sight and not just by faith, what will we be able to see that is on Jesus' flesh? Will it be those same scars? I think so. But these aren't just any scars. These are battle scars that he bore in his victorious battle against the sins of those the Father gave him. In this day and time, there were those among the Jews who, who did not recognize a physical resurrection. The Sadducees denied a physical re- resurrection. But they should have known better. They didn't believe the scriptures, apparently. The book of Job, which is... Many people say the book of Job was written before any other book, not that it happened first. Of course, Genesis happened first. But a lot of people say that Job was the oldest written book in the Bible. In Job 19, verses 25 to 26 reads, As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will rise up over the dust of this world. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall behold God. That's the resurrection, right? Paul's going to affirm this gospel of Jesus Christ using similar verbiage in Acts chapter 13. And I'm, I'm going to slide over there and jump in at verse 26. And Paul says, Brothers, sons of Abraham's family and those among you who fear God, to us the word of this salvation was sent. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. What did that say? The utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, Christ has fulfilled, they were fulfilled by condemning him. The words of the prophets fulfilled. Hmm. And though they found no ground for death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. And when they had finished all that was written concerning him, and they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb, but God, and it's two best words in the Bible a lot of times. I mean, you really find that the intervention of God here when it says, but God. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to all the people, And we proclaim to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers that God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus as it is written in the second psalm that you are my son, today I have begotten you. But that he raised him up from the dead, no longer to return to corruption. He has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and the faithful loving kindness of David. Who? David. This is who Peter is referring to. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, You will not give your Holy One over to see corruption. We've heard that before. For David, after he served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised did not see corruption. Therefore, let it be known to you, brothers, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and that in him... Everyone who believes is justified from all things, which you could not be justified from through the law of Moses. You ever wondered how to present the gospel? There's a real example. 
If you don't know what else to say and there's somebody that you've got to be a witness to and you can't do anything else, memorize that. Preach the word. Jesus' resurrection should offer great encouragement to all of us who believe. Once again, I'm referring to Spurgeon here. Die we must, but rise we also will. And we will rise because the Messiah has blazed our path for us and provided true justification for those who the Father has given him. Verse 28 reads, You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Verse 28 is a little obscure to some commentators. They feel like it doesn't really connect with the resurrection of Christ and his Messiahship. But when you really think about it, you have made known to me the ways of life. Isn't Christ like the author of life? Isn't he the first fruits of the resurrection? The new life that we're all groaning for, that we're all looking forward to? There's a lot of things in here I don't understand. I learn a little more every time. But there's nothing in here I don't believe. I may not be able to explain all the ways and workings and words of God, but I don't have a hard time believing them. It's especially hard to deny when we go on further into the book of Acts that these words saved 3,000 people. And we'll see that soon. Verse 29 to 36 are the closing verses of this sermon, and they are repetitive. But there are some points I wanted to point out, and I'll go through them quickly because I'm running short on time. But he says, Men and brothers, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us until this day. Peter once again addresses the listeners from common ground. He calls them brother. They're all Jewish by descent. He's hanging on to that common ground. He wants them to hear. And this is done to tie them together. And in this verse, Peter makes a historical statement in that David was died and buried, and his tomb is with us until this day. In other words, we can go across the street, dig him up, and find his corrupted corpse still there. But you can't do that with Jesus. Because he's gone. He came up out of that grave. And he's sitting at the right hand of the Father now. Psalm 16. Here in Peter's use is not pertaining to David. It's obviously talking about Jesus. So when you look at it in this perspective, in this application, obviously we're thinking about Jesus here. Martin Lloyd-Jones stated, Peter said that David could not be talking about himself because, said Peter, he is dead and buried and his sepulchre is with us until this day. Whereas Christ, having died, has been raised and ascended to heaven. Now we've got a little paragraph here that archaeologists have unearthed several pieces of evidence of David's existence, but we do not clearly know where his tomb is today. It's not been too long ago that they thought they had found the tomb of David, 
and there were some inscriptions on a column that they found that referenced David's name, but there was no tomb there as it ended up. They haven't found one there yet. And we don't know exactly where that tomb is at. We know it's biblically, it's got to be somewhere south on the south side of Jerusalem, and it's somewhere around the Pool of Siloam. But we're, we're not given enough to truly know exactly where it's at. And I found it interesting that Josephus, and this is not biblical, so bear with me. This is a historic, a Jewish historian who recorded this. His name is Josephus. He recorded that John Hyrcanus looted David's tomb of 3,000 talents of silver in approximately 135 B.C. And he went on further to say that Herod attempted this same thing. And Josephus states that Herod's attempt was thwarted when two of his men were killed by a sudden burst of flame as soon as they entered David's tomb. And that because of that, Herod aborted his attempts to get into the tomb. And he built a white marble sepulcher and put over the entrance of it. I don't know whether that's true or not. But it sure is interesting to think about that even in the day of Herod, was it possible that Christ made himself known that way? We were still seeing healing then. We were still seeing the miracles then. So maybe... But that's not founded in the scriptures, so don't go running home and saying that Richard's Bible said that's not the case. But at best, that's Jewish history and potentially just Jewish legend. But I found that very interesting. David is referred to as a patriarch and a prophet. So David is being elevated to the ranks of Moses, Abraham, Elijah, and Elisha. And David's known by many even today as being a former king and maybe even a patriarch in some opinions. But there are a lot of your, a lot of people out here don't realize that he's a prophet. It hadn't been that long ago when I looked at the books of Psalms, I saw a bunch of hymns that they used to sing back in the day, and some of them were better to read than others, and some of them I didn't really understand, and never saw for a minute that there was prophecy in here and that there was true theology in here, and really discredited the Psalms of my own doing. But it's full. When you read through it, it's full. Psalm 132, concerning David's seed, Yahweh has sworn to David a truth from which he will not turn back. Of the fruit of your body I will set upon your throne. This is a promise to David that his seed will reign, and one could simply say, well, yeah, Solomon followed him. That's been fulfilled. But the seed referred to here is Christ. First Chronicles 17 supports this in verses 11 through 15. We're going back to First Chronicles 17, 11 through 15. And it will be that when your days are fulfilled to go to be with your fathers, I will raise up one of your seed after you. And this is the covenant with David. I will raise up one of your seed after you who will be of your sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build for me a house, and I will establish his throne forever. I'll be a father to him, and he'll be a son to me. I will not remove my loving kindness from him as I removed it from him who was before you, but I will cause him to stand in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever according to all of, 
to all these words and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. Psalm 89, 3 through 4, I have cut a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your seed forever, and I will build up your throne from generation to generation. Even in Luke chapter 1, the angel speaking to Mary, verses 32 and 33, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And there will be no end to his kingdom over and over and over and over again. David's seed, David's seed, David's seed. Peter's clearly speaking of a descendant of David who fulfilled the words of David, not being abandoned in the grave and suffering the decay of death. Only one ever conquered that grave when, when Houdini was alive. He said, I will find a way back from the other side of death. I haven't seen him. If anybody could have found their way back by mere mortal, mortal power, he's probably pretty high on that list of all the tricks and escapes and things that he did. He didn't make it back. Christ is the only one who conquered the grave. Someday, someday we will. So David must have seen the, the resurrection of the Messiah. Verses 32 and 33 read, this Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out that which you both see and hear. Repeat, this repeats the resurrection of Christ. It repeats the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. It reminds them that the apostles have witnessed the resurrection body of the resurrected Christ also reminds them one more time what they had witnessed on the day of Pentecost. And verse 33 brings the listeners' attention, brings to the listeners' attention that Christ has been exalted and now sits at the right hand of God. And Philippians 2, 9 through 10 supports this with Paul's teaching that therefore God also also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow of those who are in heaven, for those who are on earth and those who are under the earth. Every knee shall bow. And then verse 34 and 35 reads, For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies as a footstool for your feet. Another psalm. The verbiage, The Lord said to my Lord, is a little cumbersome for clear understanding when you think about it. But it could be translated, Jehovah said to my Adonai. And realizing different names for God kind of helps with the understanding there a little. In essence, we, we have the Father speaking to the Son here. And the Father tells the Son, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Father is recognizing that Christ's work is done and it's finished that he may assume his seat of authority over all things by divine appointment. An interesting point to connect this is, is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 24 to 26. It reads, Then comes the end, 
when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father and when he has abolished all rule, all authority, and all power, for he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished is death. And you and I need to talk about some of this at some point in time. Because in, in one hand we have God putting the enemies under his footstool and here we have the Son handing the kingdom to God and the Father. I, I, I need help. But God's word is pledged and the reign of his Son at his right hand is the guarantee. This is the sight of Jesus enthroned in divine glory. It's the guarantee of all things are moving toward ultimate victory. Rebels who now stand in high power will soon be in contempt for they will be his footstool and he will rule them with ease. He's going to be sitting there resting with his feet on them, ruling them as worthless slaves who are subdued. Verse 36. And I'll, I'll wind this down. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And verse 36 is one last reminder to the listeners that Jesus Christ is the Messiah that they've been waiting for thousands of years. And that they crucified him one more time. Jesus is God as well as the anointed Messiah, and it also refers to him, refers to him being Lord. And we've had a lot of discussion around the lordship and lordship salvation and just what does Lord mean? He is my Lord. What does that mean? And if you go to Webster's, you'll find out that the word Lord means one having great power and authority, a ruler, a master even. And in the Great Commission, Christ says that all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And he tells them, go make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to keep all that I commanded you. Teaching them to keep all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And it makes sense to me that if Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth, we should show him reverence as Lord. We should keep the commandments that he's given to us in his word. If we believe in him, why wouldn't we? We're not under the law anymore. We're under grace now. Yeah, I get it. That has to do with salvation. The Ten Commandments still stand. It's still sin to commit murder, to have an adulterous affair, to covet, to steal. It's still sin to put another God before God. It's still, still there. And by keeping these, it helps with our sanctification, right? It helps with our growing closer to God. The law no longer is an obstacle for us as far as salvation is concerned. You couldn't be saved by the law. You never could. But having been saved now, being a member of Christ, being in union with Christ, we should desire to keep those laws. It's not a matter of force or will or, or, or authority pushing down on you. It's a matter of you should want to. And that helps us grow. So this concludes Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. 
And what took Peter likely less than an hour or two has taken us a number of weeks to attempt to explain and understand. Psalm 16, 8 through 11 clearly speaks of the resurrection in general and particularly of Jesus Christ's resurrection. David still awaits his physical resurrection. Jesus Christ, our Messiah, was resurrected after three days in the grave. And with his resurrection, we're assured one. We're assured a coming resurrection. Peter was not only insisting on Christ's resurrection or his being resurrected, he's insisting that the fact that he was resurrected, resurrected proves that he was the Messiah and that they need to repent and believe. This has become evangelistic. That's what his mission was the whole time, to see the very people that crucified him saved in his name and by his blood. That's what Peter wanted. That was his desire. And quite frankly, short of a soon return of Christ, our bodies will one day see corruption. And we're going to join David in waiting for a physical resurrection while our souls, our spirits are with the Lord, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. In the same state of my dad, my grandparents, the people that we've lost along the way. We're going to be awaiting a resurrection. And this is without question. The real question is, is where will these listeners in the street, what would their des destination be once they have their resurrection? And this is Peter's concern, eternal existence with God, or will it be eternal existence in torment? <clears throat> and I pray that each of us have clarity to these questions ourselves as believers. And if you have any questions around salvation, seek out one of the leaders of the church. Seek out someone as we would be more than glad, anyone here would be more than glad to speak with you. So I'm going to end there. Let's have a word of prayer and we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, it <clears throat> is at this time we close this service, but pray that you will help us to never close your word. I thank you for every person here this evening and pray that they will be edified by what has been presented this evening. And we thank you for providing us with a place to worship. We thank you for having fellow believers that seek your face and your will. And you give us a place to congregate, a place to, to hear you. Father, we ask you to be with each of us as we journey back into the world. And we pray that we will harbor you in our heart. Help us, Lord, to be a light on a hill, a light for all people to see. Bring us back safely at the next appointed time. We love you and thank you for all you do. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's children said, amen. Thank you.